You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non-competitive. If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. Welcome into our Snap Hook listeners. I'm Tim Costello. He's Scott Barzilla. Uh, it's been an interesting week as we, you know, hope we continue to build a little bit more of a listener base. And, um, you know, for those of you who have listened to us, you kind of know what to expect, when, especially um, when certain kind of stories happen or certain uh, news and sports related incidents happen. You kind of get to know that hopefully down the road, Scott and I will get to it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's been a story that's been hot, you know, it's been hotly debated, you know, throughout, you know, the sports and political world. And so when we, Tim and I came up with the idea for this podcast, you know, this is the kind of story that, you know, just, it fits in both halves of what we're talking about. And, and so the story is, uh, Brandon Miller, star basketball player from the University of Alabama. Alabama right now is ranked number two in the country. Um, you could even argue that if without Brendan Miller, they might not even be a tournament team. I mean, he's, he's that good. Um, so and here are the facts that we know. So back in January, a, one of his former teammates, Darius Miles, uh, we know for a fact that he texts him at 1230 in the morning and says, Hey, can you come over and can you bring the gun? So, Brandon Miller comes over, he brings the gun, the gun is then used to shoot and kill a 23-year-old woman who happened to be a mother of a son who is five years old, uh, shot and killed by Darius Miles. Now, to date, Brandon Miller has not been charged yet. Uh, you know, here we are, we're going to be, you know, March 1st when you listen to this, and, and we're assuming he will not be charged by March 1st. Um, and the University of Alabama knew about this all of since the incident in January, yet he's continued to play. In fact, in the last home game, in the introductions, he goes out, his teammates give him a pat down, like they're searching for a gun. So, you know, before we get dive too deep, I'm going to kind of toss the ball here back to Tim and let him give any thoughts he has on this particular situation. Yeah, you know, it's... It's, it really is a tough scenario to sit here um, and comment on too much from just our opinion point of view, right? Because when you look at, there are facts of the case, right? And at the end of the day, uh, you know, Miles had an incident, asked for his gun, but it is a, a gun that was legally registered to him and, and no laws were broken at any point during that, that process, right? So that's where it's tough for us to 
sit here and, and, and comment too much on, on that side of things. I, I think where it's, you know, easier for us to have thoughts on is, is you know, the lack of anything from the University of Alabama. I, I think that's where, um, you know, we as a society can ask for more. Because I, I don't think, you know, Kelvin Sampson at the University of Houston, right, the number one team that Alabama's beat, I don't think he would have let him keep playing in that scenario, right? If you're trying to build a legit program out and have a culture, you, you can't have those things. And so um, I, I think it's it's more on the, on the, on the coach and the, the university to in, in, interject or to step up here. I don't think, I mean, at the end of the day, the guy didn't break a law, right? But there are morality clauses. There are um, scenarios where just because by the letter of the law you haven't broken a law doesn't mean that you should be playing. There should be some sort of um, rules, right? I mean, if you go to the, the University of, of BYU, um, you know, there's a lot of rules that you can break that aren't against the law, but they're against the rules of being an athlete or being a student at, at BYU, right? And at that point, and I remember, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years ago, one of their best players on that Jimmer Fredette team, uh, the power forward, you know, had a, a girl sleep over in his room. He wasn't even warm and he was just playing there and he got kicked off the team. So, you know, you, if you're going to hold certain guys to a standard, you've got to hold everybody to that standard. Again, every university sets their culture and sets their parameters differently. But, you know, in my opinion, if I'm if I'm trying to set a culture of, of building good young men, because at the end of the day, you're right with that Miller on that team. They're not a tournament team. So you've got nine other guys. You're going to go out and live their life as as normal human beings. Your your job as a coach should be to make them quality human beings. And so if you're not doing that, where's the culture of their team? And, and I think that's, again, where we can hop in a little bit more and, and comment. Right, and I think where I'm at on this is that, and this is something, and we're going to dive you know, deep into education in this episode, and this is where, to me, I link this story with education. And the number one thing that I want to teach kids is that there's a difference between what you can do and what you should do. And I, I think, and, I've, and I could tell, you know, a dozen different stories, you know, along the lines here. Um, that I've experienced, you know, in my own life, but also experienced with, you know, teaching children. And I think, you know, because the thing is, you imagine you're sitting there in your house, your apartment, wherever, your best friend texts you at 1230 a.m. after midnight, says, hey, can you bring a gun? Whether it's his gun or, you know, whose gun it is, you're, you're sitting there thinking, gee, why do you need your gun right now? I mean, common sense would tell you that. And so I kind of link in my head, I link these stories together. I mean, like uh, we talked a little bit about Kyle Rittenhouse in the past. So a court of law determined that Kyle Rittenhouse did not criminally murder those two people he killed. They determined that, you know, it was a case of self-defense. Now he's got a civil suit that he's going to have to fight. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, legally, maybe you can bring a gun into, you know, into the city. 
maybe you can, you know, decide at 17 years old that you're going to protect property that's not yours. Maybe you can do these things, but the question is, should you do these things? And there's not enough people right now who are, you know, growing up through our schools who are asking themselves that should question. They're asking themselves, can they? And it's almost like in defiance of, yeah, I can do this. I can legally do anything I want. It's like, well, maybe so. But should you? And that's where, you know, that's where I'm at on that. No, I, I agree a thousand percent, right? Where it's, it's such a tough, it's, I, I agree that he shouldn't, right? I mean, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but there's, in my mind, if, if, if any of my friends had asked me that question, there's going to be a follow-up of what, why do you, why, you know, that's the first question out of my mouth is why do you need that? I'm not, I don't want to be involved with that. The gun's not licensed to me. If I get pulled over for it, there's a lot of things that go off in my mind, right? So, and my first question is going to be, why do you need this? And why do you need me to bring it? But, and I, I think as you're going to get into our, our discussion on how this evolves through education, and I, I feel like I saw today, as in a, you know, I had a meeting with my daughter's school and, you know, standardized tests and, and, you know, what she's going to get, what resources they're teaching to this test, right? They're, they're trying to make sure that kids are so focused on passing certain metrics so that way the school districts can get more money that I, I feel like we've lost touch sometimes on, on real life education, right? Like, we, you know, the idea of kids, most kids don't even under like paper money is, is a crazy thought to them, right? They don't, things that aren't taught, you know, counting money paying cash for things everybody's got a card there's so many things that we're just blossoming over to teach to a test that it's so hard for teachers to connect with students to take the time to um you know be able to help them grow as human beings and at the end of the day this if this guy's played basketball at the level that he's played there's some gross miscarriage of justice from the coaches that he's played with right those are the people that um spend more time with you than anybody else in that in that building you are in the gym working on your craft you're you theoretically should have some sort of relationship with some sort of coach where you know there's got to be some common sense education going on that that just did not happen there right and so where where i want to uh, tee up to use the golf analogy here uh to tee up our education talks i had a a, a principal i worked for years ago uh this is actually, you know, before my daughter was born. So, you know, this is back when, you know, Tim was in high school, back when this guy was, was, a, was a principal. And he had this saying that he said, uh, the motto that he used, it matters. Just two words, it matters. And so presumably what he meant was, it all matters. Well, anybody that knows anything knows that's not true. It can't all matter, because if everything matters, then nothing really matters. And so, like you know, the analogy, I I, uh, I remember I had a swing instructor back when I was in high school. Um, his name was Doctor Clay. He was uh, probably the best swing instructor I ever had, because he not only you know taught me how you know the swing mechanics, but he taught me psychology. And one of the things he said was, he said. The human mind, and you know, in golf, you can concentrate on two things at once. He says, and one of those two things has to be the target. 
He says, so really, you should go up there with one swing thought. And you think about, and I think Tim would agree here, you know, whenever we played our best golf is when everything was simple for us. And we just, you know, thought, hit ball to target. We didn't have to think about, okay, where do my hands go? Okay, how do I take it back? Okay, I got to make sure I transfer my... Because when you start thinking five, six, seven, eight things, I mean, you're just going to be a basket case out there. And, and I've had rounds where that's been the case where it's like, I can't, you know, I can't figure out what's heads or tails, you know, to grab the club head or the grip or, you know, whatever. And the same thing happens in schools is that we start listing 10, 12, 15, 20 things that we say matter. It can't all matter. And when you look at what's happening with curriculum, in particular, what people are starting to do is they're starting to say, okay, we don't need these 20, 25, 30 TEKS, which TEKS stand for Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills. So everybody who teaches whatever subject area you have, you have a TEK. Instead, they're starting to talk about, okay, what are power standards? What are four or five things that we want kids absolutely to lead this class knowing? And so in the same way, when you look at curriculum, is the same way you should look at what I'd call a, a character education. What are the things that are really important that we want kids to know? Because if you tell me it matters, no, you're, that's not it. You have to tell me, you have to give me a short list of things. These things absolutely matter. And so that's kind of what I wanted to boil down to, you know, you know, Tim and I together could throw this back and forth as to, you know, what the things that people worry about in schools that maybe we shouldn't worry about so much. Well, I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a laundry list of things, right? When you start to worry about when they talk about indoctrination, right? Because I think that's the one that really, really is scary um, is the indoctrination thing, right? Because now it's, am I able to get close to students? Am I able to impact kids the way that I once was? Or am I going to be afraid that I'm being told I'm indoctrinating people? I'm, I'm bringing them over to my thought process, my view, when in actuality, I'm just trying to connect with kids, right? If that's really that your goal is, sometimes you let them in a little bit, sometimes they let you in a little bit. That's just human nature. You find things that are like-minded. Hey, I see that you're reading Great Gatsby. You know what? I, that was a great book. That was my favorite one in school. You know, whatever it is, right? So when we're taking certain books out, we're not allowing teachers to build that rapport because of quote-unquote indoctrination. We're so worried about our kids being indoctrinated to certain certain thought processes, um, you know, we're taking out critical relationship building opportunities. You know, I think to me, indoctrination is one. And then I'll, I'll give you a second one to come back with too, is, is the banning of certain books, right? Like we're so worried about kids reading or finding certain material in libraries that they're missing the lessons that sometimes they need to learn from either finding that material and not liking it and realizing, hey, this is a terrible way to look at things. This is a disgusting viewpoint. This is, you know, bad. Or, you know, they're, if it's something like Animal Farm or, or you know, one of these uh, allegory type stories that gets banned, Catcher in the Rye, things like that, where they learn that coming together and working together and, and the idea that, you know, unions and things along that nature, you know, 
the ability to um, collaborate and, and work together as, as a society because that's not the capitalist thought process that we want to teach to our kids. All they learn about is making a dollar. All they learn about is how to make money, how to make other people money, realistically, uh, as opposed to how to be free thinkers and how to go into this world in a way that you will best help other people and you will leave the planet better than when you came here, right? That should be the goal of, of anytime you go anywhere, leave it better than I found it. You know, when you're on it, whether it's on a putting green, you fix two ball marks to every one of yours, leave it better than you found it. You know, you, you, you buy a house and you fix it up and sell it for more money than you, whatever it is, right? You want to leave things better than you found it. And, and our impact on the world and society should be the same thought process. I want to leave this place a better place for my children than the one that I lived in. And if we can't learn the things that we need to learn about human interaction and cohesiveness of, of society building and, and communal wealth as opposed to individual wealth, then we're never going to be able to pass that knowledge on to our children so that they continue to grow and blossom. Well, and I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, and I, when I say you, I say the listeners, because I, I know Tim knows this very well. Uh, public education in the United States, at least, really wasn't a thing until probably the latter part of the 1800s. And really, you know, you could even you know push that back, you know, to the 20th century. I, I think it really, I mean, honestly, it comes into play more once child labor laws come into effect, right? When you when you no longer are out as a kid having to earn money to help support your family, and it's no longer even allowed for you to be out there, where else are you going to go but school? Well, yeah, compulsory attendance, yeah, becomes a thing much you know much later than the 1800s, and. and it's funny that Tim brings up the whole idea of the factories because that's what the whole idea of school is about. Um, there's a reason why June, July, and August are off. And that's because, you know, that's when the harvest, you know, was typically done. And so that's, you know, the kids need to work in the fields. So we're going to give them those months off. Now, do kids work in the fields anymore? No. But... We still have June, July, and August, at least in most states. There are some states that are changing that around. But the whole idea was preparing kids to work for you know, work in factories. I mean, think about it, the school day. You have bells. These bells train you that I need to go here now. Okay, you look in, in a traditional classroom. Traditional classroom has rows. So I sit in rows. Are, are we teaching you to think critically back then? No. We don't want you to think critically. We want you to be able to hit a widget, you know, for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. You know, that's what we're training you to do. And so what happens with the Brandon Millers of the world, and I, I haven't done a deep dive on him. I don't know his history, but I guarantee you this is not the first time he's ever gotten in trouble. I mean, he's gotten in trouble at some other point. And what happens with kids is and teenagers are not dumb. Teenagers are many things, but they are not dumb. And one of the things that they are able to do is they're able to figure out when you're full of crap. When you sit there and you say, you got to do this. And the thing and I remember most, I was sitting, I remember sitting on a campus improvement team is what they call it. Basically, teachers from each department get together and we debate, you know, issues with the school, come up with ideas. And, you know, the 
the colors for our school back then, the school I was working at, they were green and white. And we had a standardized dress to where you had to wear certain colors. And we had a 10-minute debate over what shade of green we should allow. And I think at the time I even said this, and I think even more so now, I said at the time, I said, do y'all realize y'all just debated 10 minutes over what shade of green kids should wear? Is this really important? Do we care what, you know? And so we get lots of people who worry about, you know, should shirts be tucked or untucked? Should boys be able to have facial hair? Should they be able to have earrings? Should somebody be able to have blue hair? Um, does it matter if we're showing midriff? You know, should we allow shorts? Should everybody be able to have a belt? And, you know, there are some safety concerns there, you know, certainly, because, you know, the baggier clothes, you know, you can conceal certain things. But at the end of the day, is that really important for learning? Is that what we should really be worried about? And that's kind of those things that I'm thinking about is that, you know, the things that we as educators say are important. If we're not going to enforce it, kids figure that stuff out. And that just completely torpedoes your, your credibility. And so with, with this guy, you know, with this kid from Alabama, if, you know, this is not the first time he's gotten in trouble. And if every time he's gotten in trouble before, if somebody sat there and said, you know what, though, he's good at basketball. Let's not let's not kick him out of school. Let's keep him here. Or, yeah, he's got a 68 in English, but you know what? He's really good at basketball. Let's make sure that's a 72. Or, you know, maybe he's caught with marijuana or something like that. You know, we, well, we can't suspend him because if we suspend him, he can't play in the game on Friday night. If that's where he's been, then in every subsequent case, what he's going to know is, I'm going to get out of it. Whatever it is, I'm going to get out of it. Until one day, he can't. That day might not be today, obviously. But something might happen down the road, and it'll be too late. I mean, I don't want to speculate too much either, right? We don't, we, you and I really don't have his his records or anything like that. So let's take a look at, I don't know, similar situation, but you know, someone that that exact situation you described happened to, right? We're gonna look at someone who was an unbelievable athlete, played on what may have been the greatest college football team of all time, was drafted to, you know, the most dominant NFL team for a period of time put up unbelievably huge numbers, got paid, and then shot and killed people. Uh, if you haven't figured out who I'm talking about, it's Aaron Hernandez. You know, and, and, and when you have someone like that, right, he was so good athletically for his age, at a, such a young age. That's someone who didn't have to do a lot in school, was able to go to the University of Florida, where Urban Meyer didn't hold anybody but Tim Tebow accountable, it seems like, right? Tim Tebow, quality, outstanding, upstanding citizen. Almost every other person of memory on that Florida squad is remembered for a different reason that's not positive, right? When you look back at who was in there. Um, 
and, and this is a guy who was allowed to skate past for the longest time. And obviously, I bring him up as, number one, It's we know this. You know, there's been work done on his life as far as what happened. And there's been document, documentaries and books and whatnot. But also, two, that's the utmost case, right? That's the, this is what happens when it literally goes unchecked and no one has any consequences for their entire life. And they killed one person and got away with it. And then they decided to kill a second person because they know they can get away with it. And so, to me, that's that's where you get checked, right? That's the F around and find out moment. Um, and, and I'm not saying that uh, the young man from Alabama is there either, right? But... You know, this is a great opportunity as a coach. It's a teachable moment, right? Where at the end of the day, you know, let's say, like, like we said, there was no laws broken. Um, it was obviously something you should not have done. Coach and player can have a powwow. This could be a great teachable moment for a young man to say, "Hey, this is this is a life lesson we're going to learn today. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna sit you out for a few games. We're gonna." Uh, you know, set you up with some counseling. We're going to make some better decision-making. We're going to do X, Y, Z to make sure that when you have a crap ton of money next year playing in the NBA, you're able to handle that as a human being. We're not going to send somebody who has never been told no in his life out into the world with untold amounts of money. I mean, if you're a first-round lottery draft pick, getting, what, $20, $25 million as a 20-, 22-year-old with everybody and their mother coming to you asking for money, all the people from your old neighborhood coming to you, asking for money, wanting to hang around you, wanting to be part of your entourage, and, and and you don't know how to say no. And so, to me, that's it, to bring it back to that. That was a, a a very teachable moment for the coach to sit him down, get him some help to make sure that going into the future, he's going to be set to make the decisions he needs to be successful. And I, I think that's where the failure in this particular case really, really happens right now. Is, is that was a huge teachable moment, and as a coach, you you live for those, right? It, it obviously you don't want it to be at this extreme, but I, I've never met a single coach who only cares about coaching the X's and O's. I mean, Scott, you coach volleyball. You at the end of the day, it was more important to make an impact on those kids' lives than it was to win a game, you know, and you look for those teachable moments that 10 years down the line, they might not remember that score, but they remember what, what Coach Barzola instilled in us and that work ethic and the ability to be better, you know, whatever it is. And so these are the moments where you got to take advantage of that. Yeah. Kind of to take this, I guess, uh, a slightly different direction. Um, one of the things, the problems that I've had with people who decry the educational system here in the United States, one of the things I think they need to understand is that if you look at education in most of the industrialized world, I'm not going to say every country because you know I, I haven't studied every country, but we'll say England. You know, we're uh, so in England, you have and, and, and we call it the same thing primary school, secondary school. So secondary school is high school. The reason why it was called secondary school is because not everybody was expected to go to it. In fact, what they do in England is that when you're in the eighth grade, they give you uh, basically an aptitude test. And you are split into all, you know a college preparatory type curriculum or into a trade. And you know, the campus that I teach on right now is, is a 
uh, is one of those campuses where you know you learn you are in a career pathway. So we have kids who study welding, kids who study you know auto repair, kids who study culinary arts, kids who study uh, cosmetology. You know, so we have all these things, right? And the first year we were open, I remember we had this kid, and we uh, and I teach special ed, so this is one of our children. So I, I'm not, I can't say his name uh, for confidentiality services, and he got a job at a, a place called Rent a Tire. And for whatever reason, the owner decided that he should be able to change the tire by himself. So sure enough, he changes the tire by himself, puts the tire on, but he forgets one very important step. And he drives the car out, and the tire falls off and everything just collapses. So, you know, he's coming to school the next day and he's just begging everybody for money because, you know, he's got to pay for the damages that he's, you know, done to this car. And so kind of, you know, the funny thing, and, and so when we look at education, and I know you, you took mostly AP classes, I'm assuming. I mean, years ago I did. I, I <laughs> It's been... 14 years since I took an AP class. Yeah, let's say like when you were in high school. I took, uh, everything was AP except math. I took pre-AP math and then realized I got to get out of there. But everything else, yeah. And so, and this is something my daughter's learning because my daughter's in basically all AP classes except for French. She really, you know, she wanted to take honors. She took French one honors and her schedule wouldn't allow her to do French two honors. And so it's amazing what happens when you look at the difference between a regular class and an AP class. I mean, it's just a huge difference, folks. Oh, when I when I finally made the decision to switch from AP math to regular math, I was making like a fifty-eight in AP geometry, um, and then I switched to regular geometry, which is which is taught by the basketball coach. Real chill environment. I, I got a 98 for the semester, the second semester. You know, it was just the the difference of give a crap in the classroom by the teacher is is unbelievably different. But also, it is there is a big difference in the in the workload and the I, I guess the type of work that you're doing. Yeah, and what so what basically what I'm getting at here is that in the American educational system, we teach everybody. That's what, and so whenever you see our scores and say math aptitude or science aptitude or reading or whatever the case may be compared to these other countries, the first question I ask is like, okay, who are we testing? Because, you know, the United States, we're testing everybody. And those other countries, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Because, you know, once we pull kids out of the, you know, the college preparatory curriculum, you know, we're teaching them, you know, what our school is. And, and our school is terrific because, you know, if you look at a traditional model, about 25% of the American population is going to get a college degree. About half are going to attend some college. Um, now, there's certainly cases where there's going to be more than that. You know, you know, numbers are always fluctuating. But you, you could, you could, you could break America down into quadrants, right? And then there's 25 percent who will not get a high school diploma, roughly nationwide. Uh, 
And so, you know, the question is, you know, who does education work for? Well, we know it works for the kids who are going to college, but does it really work for those other kids? You know, because you kind of see what's going on in a regular classroom. And I teach in regular classrooms because I teach special ed. You don't have special ed in, in AP classes, typically. So, you know, and, I, and I'm watching us sit there and spend like, an, I'm in English classes, spend like four or five weeks writing a paragraph. And you're like, what in the hell are we doing? No, I could, you know, I could write this paragraph in three minutes. And, you know, that we're sitting there spending a month on it. And so the question is, you know, what are they getting out of it? And, and that's why I love teaching where I do, because at least, you know, these kids are getting to learn a skill at the end of the day. But, you know, as, as uh, our student that I talked about before, we used to call them lug nuts, you know, for obvious reasons. You know, if you have too many of those kids, the business community is going to sit there and go, I don't want to hire any kids from your school. So, you know, we have to hold ourselves to some level of accountability at the end of the day, because we want to be able to send kids to college. We want us to be able to send kids into the workforce, into the military that have some basis of knowledge and some basis of a work ethic or uh, this thing is not going to work. I, I think you hit on a great point there earlier as well when you mentioned that schools were designed to, you know, help people work in factories and, and get blue collar jobs, right? Because if you look back to, let's say like the 40s and 50s, post-World War II, uh, pre like 1970s time, you were able to make a pretty good living on a high school diploma, support your family, get a good union job. You, you know, college was an extravagance for a lot of people. It wasn't necessarily an option for a lot of portions of America. So you were expected to be a, you know, a, a contributing citizen in society with just a high school diploma. I would ask you to go to any standard high school today and talk to any of those seniors and you tell me how many uh, you would trust to go work a union factory job or as you said, you know, go to the military, go to the army. And, and, and the number's pretty low and obviously social maturity changes and I think that's a, a conversation for a different day, right? We, ex we expected a lot more 18 year olds in 1945 when you know, the year before, if you were 18, you were going to war. So, you know, you were emotionally more mature at that point. But either way, I don't expect much out of an 18-year-old either, right? You're you're mostly giving a menial task. And it's, it's interesting. The other day I was at a networking function and um, there was, you know, one of these self-proclaimed leadership coaches, which on a second note, that's, that's the job you want to have is have other people come in to teach their their top people on how to be better leaders, best job ever. Either way, I digress. Back to his story was essentially he was uh, in the Navy right out of high, out of college, or couldn't finish college, needed the Navy to help pay for it. Um, and at 20 years old, he is in charge of the nuclear program for the United States. He is at 22. He is the supervisor of a nuclear plant. And you know his his thing was if you take the time to, to train people and to te teach them the things that they need to be taught, um, 
then they're willing to learn. And they're, you know, young people are capable, but it goes back to what are we teaching them? What are we, are we preparing them for life in society today? And, and to me, the answer is no. Education took a large turn, especially in America, towards college, right? Everything is college is where you learn about your career. That's where you figure out what you want to do. That's where you get the qualifications to go do what you got to do. You got to go to college. You went to Clear Lake High School. I went to Clear Lake High School. Not once did they ever mention any other career opportunity other than go to college. That was it. There was no, you could be a carpenter, you could be a plumber, trade schools, beautician schools. You could go, you know, maybe a little bit of military recruiting coming in every now and then, but that was more the ROTC kids. Like that was just, it was college. You're going to go to college. And part of it is, you know, America is, you know, the greatest place to start a business in the entire world because the government will just cowtail to you and, and do whatever you want as long as you make money. And the college system makes money. They have entrapped so many kids with so much debt to say that they have a college degree so they can go sit at a desk and do what they were trained to do. The, t today, it's not... It's the progression, right? The high schools originally high schools prepared you to go work in a factory, but now high school prepares, quote unquote, prepares you for college. College gets you in debt, so that way you sit in what is today's modern equivalent of a factory, which is an office at a cubicle, and you sit there for hours at a time, paying off the debt that you accrued to be able to get this college degree. And so, unfortunately, just based on the economics of our society and the fact that college loans generate a large amount of revenue for a few people. We've destroyed actually applied knowledge in high school because we don't necessarily want kids to do these things with their hands right out of school. We want them to go to college, get in debt, and have to work for the rest of their life for the same company so that way they are working for the man generating revenue. You know, we have a shortage of over more, more than 3 million skilled tradesmen in the United States. You can make great money as a plumber. You can make great money as a carpenter. And again, those things are never talked about. Ever in, in any of the, uh, we'll call them upper suburban schools. Yeah, and that's what our school does. And so you don't want to think this, you know, Pasadena ISD is five high schools, uh, five traditional high schools. So we are the sixth high school. Pearland has a school like ours. Does Clear Creek? No. And, and But that's... Does for those of you who don't know, that that's the demographics of that area, though, right? Pasadena is a little bit more of a blue-collar area. You have a lot of refinery work. You have uh, you're very close to the ship, uh, to the the docking and ships that are right there. Pearland also a little bit more blue-collar work. Clear Lake, not the same way. To me, that's 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 where it comes from. I've never understood because we have a maritime program, and they just don't. I mean. I'm sorry to say, I mean, we don't advertise it quite enough because those people, you're talking about making 30, upwards of $40 an hour directly out of high school. I, I mean, mean one person's job is just to, one guy just guides the boat in. You, you literally get brought out to drive the boat that last 200 feet in. Thanks for your time. And that guy's making 100 grand a year. To literally drive the hundred feet because it's such an important hundred feet. Yeah, it's an, but you don't need a, you don't need anything but specific training. You know, yeah. it's, it's crazy that we stopped doing what we can to help people be successful right out of high school. Again, college used to be an extravagance for the wealthy, right? You didn't have to go to college to be successful in America. 
nowadays, I, I, the, the mantra is not that way in high school. My dad, my dad on career day told kids, you don't have to go to college to be successful. And they told them, we, we don't need you to come here next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, in fact, when I was teaching at uh, my one year at a Catholic school, you know, the, the, the counselor was telling the kids, don't go to a junior college. And I was like, what in the hell are you talking about? You know, junior colleges are great. I mean, community college, Sand Jack is awesome. Because Sand Jack now, in addition to the stuff that we had when we were going through, I mean, they've added all kinds of career pathways where, you know, kids can get, you know, immediate certifications and different things. But see, the thing is, is that, you know, we were talking about the whole factory thing. And we don't want people to think critically. Certainly don't want to teach them to do that. I mean, that would be nuts. But I think we're college in it. And my, I remember my, my sister had a boyfriend in college. And he his family came from somebody. So he was doing pretty well. And I think one of the distributorships, uh, beer distributorships down there, basically said, get a degree in anything and we'll hire you in anything. And you look at, you know, now let's look at when people complain about college loan debt forgiveness. Look at how this argument is framed. This argument is framed like people are talking about, oh, they're studying the 17th century French lesbian women's studies. And it's like they're making up just word salad, putting it together and calling it a degree when I, I don't know any university you know, actually teaches this stuff. But even if they did, think about what we've, you know, what we told kids for years, you know, starting in, say, the 60s and 70s. Go to college, get a degree in anything, and you'll get hired, and you'll have a good job. It's not true anymore, folks. You need to not only get a degree, but you need to get a degree in, you know, specific things, you know, that are marketable. And that's where, you know, we're not really, you know, teaching these kids, particularly at the traditional high school, is that, you know, we're telling them, go to college, go to college, go to college. But we're not telling them to go to college to do what? Because, you know, if you're studying, like, say, a STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, if you're, you know, doing one of those, you know, types of programs, yeah, you're probably going to get out and get a good job. But philosophy degree, psychology degree. English degree. I mean, I don't know what, you know, back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to bag on these kids, and we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow they might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And we're going to make them pay all this because we told them go to college. But we didn't tell them go to college to do what? We, we didn't tell them, hey, the world's changing. Now you have to study something specific that's marketable. Okay, that wasn't true 20 or 30, 40 years ago. And, you know, because I remember, you know, seeing a cartoon where this old man is there playing golf with this kid and saying, like, well, back in my day, 
you know, I pay for all my college loans. And the kid said, well, back in my day, you know, your, your college costs what my textbooks cost now. And, and, and that was kind of the whole point. Yeah, I mean, there was a time, and especially like when my dad was going to college, his age, you could work for the summer and pay for your college tuition, right? That was that was a pretty normal thing for kids to do. Come home, bank some money, pay for your college tuition. Well, you know, I'm not even going to take my St. Mary's tuition. Into, that's a private Catholic university. Let's just look at University of Houston. When I went there, it was like seven grand a semester, and that's a, a, a public university. So you're going to tell me I'm going to make $14,000 in a summer legally? I mean, it's just not possible. Unless I'm slinging Coke on the corner, in what way am I making $14,000 in one summer? I mean, my brother slung Cutco knives better than I've ever seen anybody sell a knife, and he made like eight grand in a summer. But And again, he was people would give him money on the phone because they didn't want him to come to their house because like, they heard he will sell you a whole block of knives that you don't want. So they'd be like, oh, I'll just take a $100 knife. You don't have to come over. And that kid made like eight grand in one summer. And, that, and that's like the most that I've seen. And so it, it is literally physically impossible to make enough money, I feel like legally, for most people to pay for your college in one summer. And then at that point, you mentioned, right, these are predatory loans. These are essentially payday loans that you are getting an eight. And, and, and to be honest, the exact thing happened to me. I went to St. Mary's first semester. No problem. Second semester. Hey, you didn't ever pay for that first semester. If you want to enroll for semester number two and my parents say, hey, just get loans. We'll pay for them later. Hey, here you go. Sign this paper. Don't read it. No. Oh, yeah. We'll make sure everything's paid for. Well, no one tells you what's in that paper. And obviously, yeah, it's up to me to to do my research, but I'm 18 and I'm being told I can't register for my next set of classes until I get this taken care of. And to get this taken care of, I just sign this form. And, and, and that happens over and over and over again. And, and at the end of the day, it really just because it comes down to we have too many colleges. We have entirely too many colleges. Not everybody that's going to college needs to go to college. I mean, we've all sat there with a class with somebody that you're like, what in the world is this guy doing in a college class right now? Like this guy is just not fit for this. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There needs to be, to make society work, you can't have a million doctors and no garbage men, right? Like at some point you have to have people filling every position. Everybody in society plays a valuable role. And if every single, if we have taken the college education and devalued it because everybody has to go to college, you now have, what is essentially the most educated group of my age, my age group is the most educated group of Americans in the history of the United States. And we are drastically underutilized at the end of the day. And, and we're unable to advance in the workplace because it's blocked. And we have this mounting debt of college debt relief that's just not going away. And we're educated, and we want to be able to do things that we're unable to do because, as you said, we didn't get degrees in the right thing. Our degree doesn't match up to what we're really interested in now because we picked something when we're 18, and now we're 35, you know, having lived a bit more life. And, hey, this is more interesting to me now. Oh, sorry, you studied English when you were 19 years old. It's, it's, it's a terrible system, but it's it's – Essentially, I mean, you're taking me down the road of like what I think is wage slavery, right? Where you've 
You've locked in my health insurance. You've locked in my ability to pay for my life. You've locked in my college loans all by the time I'm 22 years old. And I, where else am I going to get that stuff other than my employer? And I better be a good boy or else they're going to take it all away from me. Yeah, that's, you know, there's always that old joke of, uh, you know, what do you call the person who has the, the lowest grade medical school? Doctor. Yeah, and usually psychiatrist, as it, as it usually turns out. Um, but, you know, what's so, and, and this is, you know, we, we tell this tale for years. Not everybody that wants to be a Navy SEAL should be able to be a Navy SEAL. I should not be able to be a Navy SEAL. I mean, I was a fairly good athlete, but, you know, no, I mean, I, I shouldn't be. And I think one of the part of the problems, I think what you said, and you talked about people sitting in the classroom who are not qualified to be there, is absolutely right. Because what we're doing now is our campus, uh, for a couple of years now, has had a 100% graduation rate. If you're a senior, you graduate. Should you be graduating? Uh, but you do. You graduate. And now what's, what's funny is St. Jack, say a Jack, will pay for their education. Will pay off their tuition. Tuition free. Uh, and so everybody from our school can't go to St. Jack. And that's why, you know, to me it's crazy to sit there and tell people that you shouldn't go to St. Jack. I mean, that's just, that's stupid. But I do want to differentiate too, Scott, between going to a four-year university versus going to a community college or, or junior college. I think, I think there's a difference when someone who going to San Jack because there are programs within San Jack that within that two years you've got some sort of legit career or job. You can be a nurse, you can be uh, a welder, or a plumber, whatever it is. I think that's different than. There's so many private universities out there that charge 40 grand a semester that if you're willing to fork up the dough, you can go to college. Whether you should be going to college or not, you're going to get yourself in debt because your your top three schools didn't pick you. But some tiny ass little Bible college in the middle of who know where said, yeah, you can go there, but it's pretty expensive. But you really want to go to college because they told you you have to go to college. That's where I think the problem exists is there's too many just there's too many schools at the end of the day. Like, I mean, when you look at other countries, they don't have the amount of schools that we do. And then people say, oh, that's why so many people come to America to go to college. Well, yeah, because we've got 50 billion colleges here. There shouldn't be that many open spaces for people. It should be somewhat competitive. And at the end of the day, I mean, we could sit here now 20 years later after we've been to school and, and say that. But it's it's destroyed our society to a level that. I don't think that they knew what they were doing. I really, I really yeah. don't think that they knew how how much damage they were doing by devaluing the college degree. Well, and I think it, it, they they've kind of tipped their hand that they know exactly what they've done and they know exactly what they're doing because uh, years ago uh, my career kind of took midway, kind of took a detour, and I was you know ended up. You know, Texas went through a purge somewhat. Uh, we had some schools. I was a counselor down in Galveston. Uh, we had some schools closed. And so uh, I was, you know, the one not holding the chair at the end that gave me musical chairs. So I ended up 
uh, in order to make ends meet, I drove a school bus. But then I also taught a couple of college classes because I do have a master's degree. And so here's the college class they had me teach. It was called Learning Frameworks. And if you went to a junior college, which uh, I know you went to St. Mary's, uh, if you went to a junior college, you had to take this as a required course, Learning Frameworks. So you know, let me tell you what Learning Frameworks is. It's how are you going to be successful in college? Which, you know, for the first half of the semester, it's like, show up to class. That's how you're successful in college. I mean, I had kids. Who, I had this one girl. We're sitting there taking a test. And then the day before the test, she says, I can't, I can't make it to the test. I got Reba McIntyre tickets. I'm like, I don't know. I, I love Reba. I, I, I got a soft spot for Reeves. Well, so what I finally sat there, I, I finally sat there, and this is how I reached them, you know, with that example. And I said, you know what? How much did you pay for this class? They said, oh, maybe 500 bucks. I said, okay. So we have, what, 20 class sessions, you said. So each class session is worth 25 bucks. I said, the university, or the Sanjak, is saying I'm worth 25 bucks. I don't know if I'm worth 20. I mean, they certainly weren't paying me enough to, you know, for that, you know, which is another thing we can get into. But and just sat there and talked about the fact that, okay, you've bought yourself a concert ticket. You've bought it. You paid for it. And you're going to sit there and go like, yeah, uh, screw it. I'm not going to go. That's what happens when you skip a class, you know, and, and some of them, it's like the light bulb kind of turned on and went, ah, but it was remarkable because I taught, you know, a class during the day and then I taught a class at night and it's remarkable. The ones who were going at night, they were my best students. I had some people who were older than I was at the time taking this class and they were my best students because you know what? They were paid for. It's coming out of their pocket. They're the ones making, you know, living. They're the ones saying, I want to get better, you know, do something. And not, you know, 18-year-old kids who don't know what they want to do. Okay, I go to college because that's what somebody's telling me to do. Should I go to class? Well, nobody's here to make me go to class, so screw it. I just won't go to class. I mean, that's the, that's the difference. I mean, my cousin went through the same thing. Uh, he is... He's close to your age, I guess. When he first went to college, he flunked out. Just flat out flunked out. Now, he's getting a business degree at night. He's paying for it. He's got like a 3.5 GPA. Like, what's the difference? Well, whenever you got skin in the game, it's amazing how you know much different it's going to be. Uh, that's And that's not just college, too, right? That's anything in life. I still remember... You know, the, the first truck my parents gave me, I beat that thing to crap. You know, I didn't take care of it on the inside. I whacked a couple poles with it, missed some oil changes, whatever you want to say. You go look at my vehicle now, that thing's mint. You know, I'm paying the payments on that. I'm making, you know, when it comes out of your own pocket, it hurts a little bit. You know, I still remember I, I had some attendance issues myself my first go around at college. Uh, you know, I, I was always under the impression you can just show up and take the tests and, and uh, you'd be good. The other days don't really matter. 
Well, when you go to a small private college, they actually take attendance, and those other days do matter. Uh, and so, you know, I, after a couple of years at St. Mary's, I had to come home, and I had to, I had to show my parents I was serious about college, and I had to pay for my own San Jack classes. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't miss a single one without when I was paying paying to be there. And you know, there there I was the most lively in discussions and to the point where people pulled me aside after class it was like yo if you just shut up this professor will let us go home early and i was like hey man i paid to be here i'm gonna get my 900 dollars worth at the end of the day and so it's it's different when you're paying for it it's different when it's you've decided this is what you want to do and and again that's what's so tough about sending kids off at 18 years old to say hey figure out the rest of your life and for some people, that's easy, right? For some people, they've had a, a dream their whole life that they want to do. Um, but for for the rest of us who at 18, I don't know. It's, I, I, I'm the, this is the first time I'm not having my mom wake me up for breakfast every day. And you want me to figure out what I want to do for the next 50 years? Like, that's really tough to figure out at, at that age. And so going back to just how we've failed kids, right? That's how this conversation started. To me, that's that's the root of the issue. Is we are no longer teaching people how to be effective in society. We are teaching people how can you make money in this world. And when all you're worried about is making money and looking out for number one, you're not worried about building a better place to live for everybody. And I mean, I think when you look at other countries and how they handle education, uh, it's it's just done a lot differently. It, it is absolutely done differently. And we just, as a society, we are so focused on getting kids ready to go to work. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you graduate college? What are your plans after school? You know, if you said, I don't know to that, could you imagine like your senior year of college and someone comes up to you and says, hey, what are you doing after school? You said, I don't know. What? How do you not know? Are you not applying for jobs? Do you have internships? Have you done an internship? Let me introduce you to John. He can get you set up at whatever company, right? Like it would be the worst thing in the world to say, I don't know what I want to do. You're supposed to know, and it's it's crazy, right? It's just it's it's a crazy thought process that we're asking these kids to define themselves and their whole life instead of saying, "Hey, we're going to teach you how to be good people. We're going to do our best to to show you good examples of of how to to be a positive impact on the people around you." And you know, here's here's a place to continue your education if you want that. Here's a place to learn some skills that will help you make some money until you decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. To me, that should be education right there. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like, you know, get off my lawn guy. And, and I kind of, you know, I kind of skate skate towards that you know, every once in a while. But I remember one of our, uh, one of our special education students, and, and, and thankfully, you know, at least for the culinary arts program, she's gone. But I remember I was... You know, I was going over, I was doing this assignment with her in English, and I was giving her example, trying to you know, tie into her knowledge of culinary arts, because, you know, presumably she should be knowledgeable here. And I said, so, you know, it's just like you know, when the chefs tell you not to, you know, not to undercook your chicken. And she says, why shouldn't I undercook my chicken? And I was like, remind me never to eat anything you've prepared. Just, you know, do that for me. The thing is, is that it's like I said with the Navy SEALs. Not everybody could be a Navy SEAL. I think one of the problems we've decided is that everybody by the age of 17 or 18 years old should, you know, have their life together, 
should have a high school diploma. I think we need to strike a balance because I think there are people who figure things out later on in life, and I think they deserve every opportunity to make good. And so, like you, you hear, like in Houston, they have programs like Houston Can Academy, where you know people who fall through the cracks can go back and get their high school diploma, and I think that's a great thing. But what I, the problem I have now, and this is where the get off my lawn guy comes in, is that we have kids we're giving diplomas to that have not earned that diploma. But we're going to make all kinds of excuses for them. Well, they were absent 30 times, but you know what? We're going to take some of those absences and we're going to apply them to basket weaving, which they really don't need to graduate so that they can pass math, but they do need to graduate. And, and okay, there you, there's your diploma. Well, the thing is, is what has that kid learned? That kid has learned, doesn't matter. You're going to pass me. I mean, that's what we have a lot of our special education students. I mean, I'll sit there and ask a teacher when they failed a kid to special ed, and I'll, and I'll sit there and just say, hey, did you call home and tell the parents that the kid was failing? And they'll say, oh, no, I'll, I'll give us 70. It's like, no, that's not what I said. Did you call home and let your parents know that they're failing? This is not a, a, I'm not speaking in code here. We have too many kids that we're just passing along. And so they get into the workforce. And, and I, I've heard it too many times where, you know, they'll sit there, they'll skip meetings at their, at their job. They'll show up late. They'll just skip days, do whatever. They all of a sudden they get fired. And they'll be like, wait a minute. When I was in school, I could do this every day. And they gave me a diploma. I think that valuable lesson, the lesson of failure, I think it's an important one. And I think it's something that all of us have failed at one time or another at something. And we learned from that. We learned, hey, I've got to prepare differently. Or, hey, i got to do this differently. Okay, if you don't allow kids to fail, they're going to fail eventually. And they're going to fail at a bigger scale that's going to have a much larger impact on their life than if they failed, let's say, a spelling test or if they failed a class. Absolutely. And that's that's why sports is so important, in my opinion at least, right? Because you learn how to handle a loss. You're not going to win every game. You're not going to get a hit every time you're at the plate. You're not going to, um, you know, you're going to make some bogeys out there. Whatever sport it is, right? You're not going to be 100% at whatever it is that you're doing. And it's it's how do you handle those times where you're not the best? How do you handle those times where you didn't have your A stuff out there and you still had to find a way to compete or you still had to, um, you know, learn from what happened? And so those things are so important. And you're right. You know, we're not when 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 you can't play dodgeball, when when every kid gets a trophy, when, you know, we don't keep score, we're not doing batting averages, we're not. um you know, we're not holding people accountable. There's there's a long list of things that happen. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be those guys who saying we're coddling today's youth, right? Because I don't I don't necessarily know if that's the case. Because we are are we are learning more as a society as we get older of what are the most effective ways to raise children and the psychology of kids, and we're learning more and more about what make people tick. 
So I don't want to sit here and say that, oh, we're coddling kids because it's not 1920 anymore, right? You don't have to go out and, and, and be a newsie on the streets trying to sell newspapers so your family can survive. Times obviously have changed. And with that, as a society, we've, we've gotten soft, right? I mean, you don't go out and hunt for your dinner anymore. You go to Kroger, you go to H-E-B, you buy the meat you want, you throw it on the grill. So everybody's gotten softer as, as, as a world. So to say that we're coddling our kids, yeah. I mean, whatever you want to call it, we want them to have what's best. If you show me a parent that doesn't want their kid to have a better life than they had themselves, I'm going to realistically question you because that's what every parent should want. And so I, I don't want to say that we're coddling the kids because that's not it. But we do have to make sure that even when we – you can show them a loss and then pick them up and dust them off and say, here's how we come back from that, right? There's a way to let kids experience defeat. But do it in a way that says when you've got a support system around you, when you're loved, you can take a loss, you can bounce back, and you go get them again tomorrow. Right. And I think that's where it, it, we, we get to this debate every time Congress ever brings up the idea of raising the federal minimum wage. It, you know, we get to this debate where, you know, conservatives will sit there and go, well, the only people who are really working these minimum wage jobs are, are teenagers. It's like, no, <laughs> actually, the majority of people working the minimum wage jobs are not teenagers. But I think you know what sits in the back of their mind is they are picturing that kid who was an absolute turd, didn't go to school, didn't do his work, you know, drops out of school, and there's this overwhelming desire to punish them. Say, well, you are working that minimum wage job, and you're going to do that for the rest. of of your natural life. I think there has to be a balance. Number one, we do have to experience failure. We have to, everybody does. But at the same time, there has to be a road to redemption. There has to be a road back. Because, and, and I've had former students and, and I've tried to keep in touch with them. You know, Cause like you said, you know, with the coaching, I, you know, I lost most of the games I coached. So I, I don't want to think about what the final score was to a game I coached back in 2005. I, you know, I don't care, but what are those people doing now? What are those kids doing now? Did they make, you know, are they successful? And in some cases, you know, some are more successful than others, but some of them, I know for a fact, some former students I've had were some of those students who did not do what they needed to do in order to get, the grades that they should get, you know, in order to say to get into a good college or to get a good job. But maybe when they were 25, all of a sudden something clicked. They figured it out and go like, oh, well, we need to provide opportunities for those people when that happens. And I think that's the problem we have in society is that we, you know, we're way to one way or way to the other. Either we, you know, want to coddle people, give every, you know, give them everything, or you make a single mistake and you're just going to be pushed down to the ground, make a minimum wage for the rest of your life. No, to either both of those. There needs to be an avenue back. We need to allow people to fail if that's what, they're, if that's what their actions are, are dictating. But we also need to sit there and say, you know what? If you ever get to the point where you figure out that maybe what we were telling you is actually true, now let's give you an opportunity to give you a leg up. Now let's see if we can get you ahead. 
And, and in some cases, you know, maybe that minimum wage job is all they can do. But you know what? If they work hard, maybe they can, you know, if they're at McDonald's, let's say, you know, maybe they work themselves up. But, you know, maybe we make it, you know, a livable wage to where they could feel some pride about what they're doing. And I mean, that's where we need to go. Yeah, I, you're hitting the nail right on the head. And I, I think we're both kind of really of the same come from the same cloth when it comes to when we see these problems and, and how we'd like to fix them. Um, but I think we're getting to the point of the show where there's, you know, something this week has, has stuck in our craw. You know, every, every day there's some idiot out there saying some stupid thing, but somewhere between last week and today, specific idiots stuck out. Scott, what idiot or scumbag, shall I say, stuck out to you this week mine is our beloved speaker of the house kevin mccarthy now what has kevin mccarthy done that is stuck in my craw this week <laughs> i had to specify this week so as a speaker of the house and as the person who you know is in charge of, of everything you you had the january 6th committee and the january 6th committee before him were able to accrue all the security footage from January 6th. So now, Kevin McCarthy, being the Speaker of the House, you know, he could establish, he could continue that committee if he wanted to. Does he want to? Of course he doesn't. Because we really don't want to know what happened on January 6th, because we all know what happened on January 6th. Okay, so what does he do? He takes all the footage, and he gives it to who? Tucker frickin' Carlson. Now, let, let's 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 we talked about Tucker Carlson last time. Uh, so let, let's put him aside for a second. Could you imagine if Nancy Pelosi said, "You know what? You know who needs all this footage? We're not going to give it to the FBI. We're not going to give it to the Justice Department. We're not going to keep it within Congress. You know who we're going to give it to? Let's give it to Rachel Maddow. That's who really needs the the footage." See, I, mean, I almost feel it. like it's like it's like they said, "Let's give it to Howard Stern." I think, honestly, that is more of an appropriate... Because at least Maddow was a legitimate, serious news person. Tucker Carlson is a, com, is, a, is, a, is a political commentator who does no... He, I think Howard Stern would have done better with this footage than Tucker freaking Carlson. Well, because what is Tucker Carlson going to do? Because, you know, Howard Stern, what is he going to do? He's probably going to find the funniest clips and he's going to poke fun at it. You know what? And, and maybe there's something to that. Maybe, maybe that's, that's, there's some entertainment value there. What is Tucker Carlson going to do? Tucker Carlson's going to take, you know, these, a little clip here, a little clip there, and he's going to come out, and I guarantee it. The first one is going to say, see, January 6th wasn't that bad. Wasn't that bad. See, I've got it's the video all, It's proof. already starting. It's, it's already okay. coming out. I got the video proof right here. Not bad. Not bad at all. Hey, look, it was Black Lives Matter. Look, look here, here's an African-American. See that? It's Black Lives Matter. You know, he picks up the one black guy in a crowd, you know, or, you know, hey, look, it's Antifa. Oh, uh, you can see there, there, there's, there's the Antifa symbol. So I don't even know what Antifa, you know, Antifa symbol is, but there, there it is. He's going to meld it all together. And it's just going to be the, the most just hilarious shit show if, if you actually know what's going on. And, and I can't, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's been all kinds of jokes about Kevin McCarthy that, you know, he's having to do laundry for the Freedom Caucus. You know, he's he's sitting there running errands, you know, picking up 
Chinese takeout for the Freedom Caucus. I mean, this guy, he's just, he's just completely sold himself. Um, he's like one of those guys on Shark Tank who sits there and goes like, well, you know, I want to sell 3% of my company for a million dollars. And it's like, well, we'll take a 20%. Well, actually, I've already sold 96% of my company, so I can only give you 3%. I mean, he's he's got maybe, what, 3% of his soul left? Maybe two? Uh, it, it, he's just it, just horrible. Pretty good choice. I Kevin McCarthy's at the top of the list most weeks for scumbags. Um, get a little more topical with mine this week, and it's more of a... I don't know if scum. I mean, he is a scumbag, obviously. And, and this week, I don't know if scumbag's the right word for what he did, but it's more of a self-serve, and I wanted to recognize it. So about a month ago, in their attempt to quote-unquote own the libs, uh, the Republicans and Matt Gaze passed, passed an amendment that you have to say the Pledge of Allegiance before um, every judiciary hearing, right? And I... I personally, like, I'm not a huge fan of the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, I did it every day as a kid, and now every now and then, like, I go to a chamber meeting or something like that, and you have to say the pledge. Like, I, I feel weird doing it. Like, I just, I'm a grown man talking to a flag, like, pledging my allegiance to the flag. Like, it's just, whatever, besides my personal feelings. So, Matt Gates, for the first time that they're going to do it, Brings in someone that he met at a gun club to do the Pledge of Allegiance. And then it comes out that this guy is on trial, accused of murder. Literally a like on trial for murder. And then lo and behold, we're not doing the Pledge of Allegiance anymore at meetings. Like I, I they love to grandize. They do they do no checking no screening there's none of this they find one guy that they meet at a gun club you're like this guy that's a patriot right there and it's like it absolutely doesn't surprise me one bit that it's matt gates that is involved in this because he is just an absolute moron who couldn't even figure out not to pay for sex via transferring of money on an app like he couldn't even figure out that hey you do that in cash so they can't trace it nah he left a digital receipt for everything this is the same guy that you have vetting people to bring in front of congress and he picks an accused murderer i mean only oh, matt gates and i don't know if you saw this when he first uh, proposed the amendment uh one of the democrats on the committee said okay uh here's another amendment Anybody that has participated in an insurrection attempt cannot say the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't know if you caught that. Um, but it, yeah, Matt Gates is, a, is an excellent choice. I mean, he, he is a, a top nominee just about you know, every week. And, and, I, and I wanted to bring up a past nominee uh, uh, award winner. Uh, we don't want to try to repeat awards you know, too often. So we're going to give uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene the math award. I don't know. She could get a lifetime scumbag achievement award for her her performance this week on on secession. I, I don't know if this is I don't know if this is scumbag material. I think this is you know, more dumbass material. But did you know, Tim, that since Joe Biden has been president, that six point one billion people have crossed over the Mexican Texas border? 
Yeah, I, I don't know if you realized it either, but like a third of the whole world's population is crossing over into uh, into America through the Mexican border. I think I said this either on Twitter or on Facebook, and I said, gee, that's why 73 people were in my sixth period class the other day. <laughs> I mean, it was it was wacky. I mean, and she said this before, and, and, and she brought up another case where she, there was an elementary school in Illinois that had a grant for, I think it was, $5 billion for drag times, you know, drag queen story out. And I would like to just remind Margie Taylor Green, if you happen to be listening, hey, welcome, Marge. Come on in. You know, join us. A billion is a thousand million. Just, you know, I just want to throw that out there in case you didn't know this. And, you know, if any school is getting, you know, our, our principal keeps telling us we're going to have budget cuts and we might lose staff. But, hey, if we could get a grant for $5 billion... Come on, let's go. We're going to have 200 teachers on our staff. Uh, it's, you know, facts matter. Yeah, and Numbers then to top matter. it all off, I mean, she's she spent a whole week talking secession. Literally, hey, we can still do business. Red states can do business with blue states. We just don't want to be around you. Like she's, And then, out of nowhere, she can throw a workout video up. Like, you've, you've spent a week talking mad shit. And then out of nowhere, we're going to watch your CrossFit routine. Like, what's that supposed to be? Like, come at me. Oh, I do CrossFit. Like, it is. I, what the sad part is, like, I truly think that's who Donald Trump picks for his vice president, him or uh, the governor in Arkansas. Like, I, <laughs> as crazy as Marjorie Taylor Greene is, I truly believe Trump's stupid enough to put her on his ticket because he thinks he needs a woman to compete with Kamala. But, hey. Hey, can't, do you think you could flip one of those monster truck tires? I don't think I need to try, Scott. That's the difference between <laughs> me and her is there is no world where I need to flip a monster truck tire. I am a proud, proud person who is very happy to have roadside assistance added onto his his insurance for an extra like dollar fifty a month. It's 1,000% worth it. If I had to change your tire, I could, but why would I want to? I pay a dollar fifty a month, and someone will be there in thirty minutes to take care of it. I mean, that's kind of like Tin Cup, you know, where he says, "Sir, I shot even par with a seven iron." You know, Sister Don Johnson's character will never occur to me to even try. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I I have never once done a CrossFit workout in my life, and 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 that's it. Honestly, it makes so much sense that she's a CrossFitter because it's so culty. And she got into politics as a QAnoner and another culty thing. I mean, it's the, the CrossFit culture and the QAnon culture, sadly, do link up because it's just they're very culty. And uh, good old Marge is the uh, grand wizard behind the white hood, if you get the reference I'm making there. Oh, yeah. And, and I do go. I, I have a trainer that I go see twice a week. And, and But we're not flipping tires. We're not no. doing that. Um, I mean. I mean, I'll do some golf-specific workouts, like maybe a little core training, some power walking, like some some resistance bands, stuff like that. But go watch Full Swing. They got a full like video. They got a, a full part of an episode where they have all the PGA Tour guys in the gym working out together. Not one of them is doing CrossFit stuff. They're doing like resistance training. They're doing lightweight, uh, heavy reps. I mean, I, CrossFit is 
for the people who want to tell other people that they do CrossFit. I mean, to me, that's a, a have you ever met someone who does CrossFit who doesn't tell you that they do CrossFit? And to me, the answer is no. Right. And, and so just to kind of put a tight bow on this, you know, our show is ever evolving. And, you know, we, we came up with the idea of the scumbag of the week, you know, a few weeks ago. And you know, so, you know, we might have to have like a special, you know, what did Marge say this week, you know, kind of as just a, a regular feature because, you know, we could probably we could probably find something every week. Oh, 1000 percent. I, I think you could probably come up with like a uh, a Leno. I mean, uh, uh, is it Leno who did it? No, Letterman top 10 of uh, yeah. of Marjorie Taylor Greene's dumbest 10 tweets of the week. And it'd be a fresh 10 every single week. And you'd have like 25 dumb ones to narrow it down to the 10 that we decide to make the list. But. We'll see. As you said, the show is ever evolving, and uh, I, I do love the idea of putting her ass on blast on a daily basis. We could combine like her and Bobert together for like just just the dumb things being, or maybe just like dumb Republican tweets of the week. I think could be could be the segment. Uh, I think that's a winner. Awesome. Well, hey, this has been part one of this week's episode. Uh, State as you always, we're gonna. Uh, have part two out tomorrow, so be sure to check that one out. But it has been a pleasure to to kind of have this little more in-depth conversation about um, maybe some ways that we could be helping the youth a little bit more in, in society. And, and uh, you know, each one of us can maybe find a way to step up a little bit more and, and, and be more of that coach, Get a, find a way to be involved with, with the youth, volunteer, you know, whatever it is to where you can – you can try and make a difference and, and you can, um, you know, you can show where it matters. You can, you can do what matters, where it matters without relying on other people to do it for you. Absolutely. Scott, where are they going to find you? Where's the, uh, where's the Twitter? Where's the, where's the articles going this week? I saw you had a really good one on, uh, on battle red blog this week. Oh, well, thank you. I, uh, Battle Red blog is where I write about the Texans uh, under V-Ball Retired, you know, because I am a retired volleyball coach. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Sbarzilla, and also write an occasional column at the Daily, uh, not the Daily here, uh, the Hall of Fame Index.com. As always, I'm Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. That's going to be it for this episode part one here. We will be back tomorrow in your feed with part two.